What do you see when you look into the face of your neighbor? Do you see a stranger? A friend? A foreigner? Or a refugee? Do you see someone to avoid? Someone to hide from? Do you see someone to hate or someone to love? Can you see yourself in their face? Do you see the face of Jesus? All right, we are continuing with our Dinner with Jesus series, and we're looking at the Gospels. And one of the things that we recognize is that Jesus loves to eat. You realize that? Jesus is often at a dinner table. Uh, He's not shy uh, about showing up to have a good meal. And so Jesus is often eating. In Luke's gospel, uh, it's it's, uh, mentioned that he's either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And so these are important things. Other gospel accounts, like the one we're going to read today in Matthew, also capture the fact that Jesus is often eating eating and drinking together. And because of this, he develops a bit of a reputation, an undeserved reputation, but his enemies say, hey, look at this guy. He's a drunk and a glutton. He wasn't, but that's what they claimed because they saw him eating and drinking so freely. And he would go to anybody's table. Uh, we saw last week he went to, you know, the tax collector's table the first week. He went to a Pharisee's table the next week. Well, today... Jesus has a picnic, and that's what we're going to see, is Jesus actually kind of hosting a picnic, and we're going to read it, if you want to turn with me, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. So Matthew chapter 14, beginning to read at verse 13. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. Now, just pause there. I won't do this with every single line in the passage, but pause there. You should be asking the question, what news? What did Jesus hear that meant that he would want to be alone? Uh, We're going to come to that, so just keep that in mind. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, that isn't necessary. You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here, he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass Jesus looked to the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. Jesus has a 
picnic. Is it a familiar story? <laughs> I, I hope so. Um, if you haven't heard this story before, that's awesome. Uh, but one of the problems we have with the story that we hear so often is we kind of tune it out, don't we? This story is so important, though, that all four Gospels record this story. In fact, Matthew and Mark also record an additional feeding of 4,000 people. So this is very, very important for us to get. But because it's so familiar, because we hear it in Sunday school, if we came through the Sunday school system, we tend to tune it out. I think in Sunday school, I thought of this story kind of this way. Isn't Jesus magical? He can multiply things, and I should have that for my Lego, or something like that. Like there's this kind of magical understanding of the story, that Jesus would do something and multiply this. Now, if you went to a better Sunday school, like Christine went to, um, you might have come away with something like this as the lesson. Look what Jesus can do with what little we have. And I think that's part of the message here too, isn't it? But there's something deeper in this story. There's actually a dark side to this story. So I want to invite you to come over to the dark side just for a little while as we explore the story and the backdrop to it. Because I think sometimes we get to the story, we get to the feeding, um, because we like the food part and what Jesus does, but we forget that there's a dark backdrop, at least in Matthew's gospel, he really brings this, this out. So the darker side to the story is this. The background is a major political sex scandal. Did you know that? You'll never look at this story the same way twice, right? You'll never look at this story the same again. Uh, the background to the feeding of the 5,000 is a major political sex scandal that led to civil war and the beheading of a man. That's the truth. And to prove it to you, I'm going to read from the beginning of that passage in Matthew, because sometimes we forget to read it. It's not on the screen, but uh, you can listen while I read. Here's what it says uh, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, and that's where they were, they were in Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is why he can do such miracles. Like Herod is freaking out, and you'll see why in a minute. For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John was a prophet. But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodian's daughter performed a dance that greatly pleased him. So he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. At her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. Then the king regretted what he had said, but because of the vow he made in front of his guests, he issued the necessary order. So John was beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl, who took it to a mother. That's gross. Like, isn't that wild? Honestly. Later, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. That's the backdrop to the feeding of the 5,000 is this awful thing. Here's the short version of what happened. And there's a longer version, trust me, but here's the, the Coles notes of what happened. 
Herod. Now, you might be familiar with that name, but it's not the, the Christmas Herod, right? We talk about King Herod, the, the great at Christmas time. He was the one that massacred all the babies trying to uh, obliterate Jesus, right? It's not that Herod. It's actually his son. See, after Herod the Great died, his kind of domain, his rulership was divided between four people, and one of them was Herod Antipas. That's the character in our story. The other son that he had was Philip. Well, one day, Herod Antipas and Philip and the other rulers went to Rome for, I don't know, to see Caesar, have a party, go on vacation, something like that. And while he was there... Herod Antipas had an affair with his brother's wife, Herodias. And they had an affair, and they fell in love. And when they got back, they said, we have to be together. So Herod Antipas actually dismissed his wife, divorced her, sent him back to her kingdom. She was a princess, and that caused war and conflict in the southern borders. And then Herodias um, divorced Philip, and... Herod and Herodias. I mean, come up with some other names. That's just too confusing. They got married and it created war, civil war on his border. So here's the point of the story. Because Herod Antipas was so selfish that he wanted a particular woman, thousands of people died. It was a dark time, especially for the people in Galilee that were right up against the border and involved unwillingly in this civil war all because he wanted one particular woman, his brother's wife. And so John the Baptist, he criticized Herod for this, and he was an outspoken critic of this, saying, look at what you've done. This is not lawful, and look at the chaos and the disorder and the disrespect you've caused to all the people. That's what's happening. Well, Herod decides in the midst of all this to throw a big birthday party. For himself, I guess, is that what it said? He throws a big birthday party, right? Invites all these dignitaries to come around, and he gets his niece, who is now his stepdaughter, right? To dance for the men at the party. This guy's twisted, right? And so he, she dances, and he's very pleased with her dance, and makes this rash vow, I'll give you the moon, whatever you ask for. And uh, her mother whispers in her ear, we want a head. We want John the Baptist's head and a plate. And uh, so she asked for that. And that's what happened. So John the Baptist lost his head because of this party and all the dark backdrop to this. So when Jesus hears about John, he seeks solitude. He wants to be alone. Why? Well, first of all, John is his cousin. Sometimes we forget that. But his cousin has just been beheaded. It's just an awful way to go, right? And now Jesus is wondering, am I next? And in fact, it was under Herod Antipas that Jesus is executed. So Jesus is in grief. His cousin was very close to him. Do you remember the story around Christmas time? We talk about Mary being pregnant coming to see Elizabeth, and John the Baptist is in Elizabeth's womb, and he jumps for joy, even in the womb, when Jesus comes into the room, right? It's that kind of close connection that they have. John the Baptist is the one that baptizes Jesus. They were close. John the Baptist is the one that prepares the way for Jesus. And now his cousin is dead, and Jesus is in mourning, he's in grief, and he's beginning to anticipate his own death. 
Would you seek solitude? <laughs> yeah. Just leave me alone for a bit. I just need some time to catch my breath, just to be alone. So he seeks a quiet place to grieve, but also to kind of lay low, just for a little bit. But what happens when he gets there? What does he see? A massive crowd of people have come out. What would you do? I know what I would do. I'd be like, turn this boat around right now. We're going the other way. Uh, but what does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with compassion that leads to kindness. Last week, I talked about the story and, and why I loved love Jesus so much and want to follow Jesus because of the way he treated that woman that washed his feet. This is another reason why I want to follow Jesus, because I want to be like this. In the midst of his grief, in the midst of his brokenness, in the midst of his concern for safety, he still shows compassion to others. Henry Nouwen coined a great phrase. Uh, he called Jesus the wounded healer, and he calls us to do the same. If we're involved in helping to, to heal others in some capacity, to bring relationships together, to bring compassion, we do so not because we are whole, but we do so as wounded healers. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus loves the people. And this is a complete contrast to Herod. Herod is throwing a party for his best friends. He doesn't care about the people. He's just throwing them into war. But Jesus instead shows a different way of being in the world. He has compassion on the people. In fact, in one of the gospel accounts, he looks at the crowd and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Because ordinary people suffer when our political leaders fail. And that's what's happening partly in the passage. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, Jesus stepping into that political scene and caring for the people. So we learn a lot about compassion and kindness, don't we? Compassion is literally to suffer with. It's that feeling of empathy we have. Kindness is the act that results from compassion when we do something about it. And so we learn some things about this. We learn that kindness is inconvenient. It doesn't happen at the best time. When you're called upon to be kind to someone else, it's often not at the best time in your life. That's what's happening with Jesus. We learn that kindness is costly, right? That's for Jesus, it cost him his solitude. It cost him his, his time of grief. He goes back to it in the end, and he has his own time of, of grief and quietness, but it costs him that. It costs the, the disciples their only food that they have. Kindness is costly. But the thing I really want to drive home is this. Kindness is the way of Jesus. Compassion and kindness is the way of Jesus. And that's the way I want to follow. That's what I have to learn. I want to be more compassionate. I want to exercise kindness in this world. And that's so important. Uh, do you guys remember Blockbuster? You know, the, you used to go get your... We still have our Blockbuster card. I think I told you this before. Uh, we got a, a bill years ago now. I think we still have it somewhere. And it was for overdue charges in the amount of $6.66. We never paid it. Um, that's probably why they went under, maybe. <laughs> but a lot of the Blockbuster VHS cassettes, there would be this thing that said, be kind, Please rewind, right? Show some kindness to another person. And, and I think that's kind of a, a funny way to think of kindness because it makes kindness kind of trivial. It's just rewinding a movie. Some people here might be going, you had to rewind movies? What's going on? But yeah, once upon a time, you had to rewind movies. Uh, but kindness is actually way more powerful than that. 
It has the powerful power to transform communities. In fact, someone has said that compassion, kindness is the greatest apologetic of the church. Sometimes I think when we go into the world around us and with our co-workers and in our schools and whatever, we feel that we have to be armed in order to win every argument. If they question the Bible, we've got to argue back and win the argument. I, I don't think that's what we're called to do. I think compassion and kindness is the way that we live in the world and the way that we're meant to live in the world. And so this is what Jesus models for us. When he comes to this crowd, what does he do? He shows them kindness. He shows them compassion. And the disciples pick up on this. Um, they're concerned for the crowd too. They look around to the crowd and they realize, hey, these guys are getting hungry. Maybe they're even getting hangry. You know that term? When you're hungry and you get a little angry at the same time and you need a Snickers bar or something like that. But the problem is they don't have anything to give them. So their solution was what? To send the crowd away. Their solution lacked imagination and lacked faith. Jesus has a different solution. What's his solution? You feed them. You feed them. Can you imagine that? Imagine you're the disciples. You know that you don't have a lot of food. You're out in the wilderness. There's no 7-Eleven around. And Jesus comes and says, we've got a problem, haven't we? You feed them. And the disciples are like, with what? And in a lot of the other passages in the Gospels, you find them trying to work out the logistics. They're calculating the cost of food. This would take half a year's salary in order to feed all these people. It's ridiculous, Jesus. What are you talking about? But Jesus insists, you feed them. And so what do they do? They say, well, this is all we've got. It's so small. And Jesus says, bring it here. He blesses it. And then it's more than enough for everyone. And that's the amazing part of this story. I think sometimes, as I mentioned in the prayer time, we're overwhelmed by the problems of this world. Uh, we look at hunger and we look at loneliness and conflict and suffering. And we, we go to God and say, where are you, God? Where are you in all this? Do something about this. And sometimes I think I hear God saying back to us, you feed them. <laughs> you feed them. You care for them. You come alongside them. And, and, and our, our justification for that is, hey, we, we're not equipped for that. <laughs> we don't have enough. And Jesus says, bring what you have and let's see what we can do with it. That's the encouragement of the passage. Bring what you have and let's see what God will do with it. I've told this story before, a story about John Wimber, who started up the uh, Vineyard Church Movement. And John Wimber tells this great story about a lady in his congregation that one time uh, ran into a man that needed food. He was very hungry. He had no money. He needed food. And so this woman was very angry with John Wimber. And uh, she came to confront him. And she said, I ran into this man and he needed food. And so I called the church. But no one was in the office. It was like 8 p.m., right? But she still expected someone to be there. No one was in the office. And so I left a message on the machine, but no one got back to me. And so I tried to call all the pastors, and none of them responded. I couldn't find a single pastor that would help me. So you know what I had to do? I had to buy him some food. And she said to John Wimber, you know, the church should really do something about this. And John Wimber said, I think the church just did. You fed. You fed him. And I think that sometimes 
our default. When we see problems in the world, we wonder, you know, the church should do something about this, or the government should do something about this, or maybe God should do something about this. And the thing that, the phrase that struck me in this passage is, you feed them. <laughs> you feed them. With whatever you have, go out and do the work of God. Trust God that God will take it and multiply it. Well, there's lots more to this story, um, but here's what I want to drive home this morning, that Jesus, even in his own grief, had compassion for others. And that's something that I think we need to take home. But also, while Herod hosts banquets for the powerful elites, Jesus hosts a picnic for the forgotten blue-collar workers of Galilee. And that's a contrast that we find often in the Gospels. And that's why I love to follow Jesus. In the process, he shows us that the power to meet the needs of others is often within our own reach. So what do we have in our hands? What can we offer today to meet the need of another person? Sometimes it doesn't seem like much, but we bring it to God and ask him to bless it and multiply it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can come into this place and we can reflect on your word together. Thank you for the challenge of Jesus saying to his disciples, you feed them. And we hear that challenge this morning. And to be honest, so often we feel inadequate. And often we don't do this very well. But whatever we have, we bring to you. And we say, Father, use it. Help us to be people of peace and forgiveness, of grace in a world that's hurting and in need. And we pray that you'd strengthen us and take whatever we have and multiply it for your glory and for the benefit of the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.